Well, good morning, church. Are y'all lively at 1045? Yeah, it's kind of, it's cold, I get it. We'll, we'll get you warmed up here in a second. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horb, and it's an honor to be able to spend some time with you this morning as we open up the scriptures and allow God to teach us something new today. Uh, I woke up this morning, and I was kind of bummed because I had this zit on my nose, and I was like, you gotta be, like, 13-year-old boy, like, just crazy. So if you're watching online, you're like, what's on his nose? It's a zit, okay? If you're in here, like, Trevor, just, okay, just focus on the content, okay? We'll get through all this. So um, I'm excited to be with you this morning, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into our message today. Now, truth be told, Emma didn't even hear me at 9 o'clock. She didn't know if this was good or not, so we'll, we'll see how it goes together, I think. Um, we are in a sermon series right now called Jesus is Greater, and just kind of, uh, spoiler alert, though, for real, the, the conclusion of this sermon series, the conclusion of every week, I hope, would be for us to conclude in our hearts that that is indeed true, that Jesus is greater. He's, he's greater than anything else we could possibly choose to uh, base our life on or turn our attention toward. And so this morning is just another piece of kind of walking down this journey of, of him being greater. You see, in the end, choices that we make each and every day in our lives come out of what we have made in our hearts, choices about things that we deem to be greater. So this morning, I wanna kinda like, you know, set things off, get you guys moving a little bit with a little bit of a, a challenge about some of the most mundane things in our life and the things that we, see, we choose to be greater. Now, to be clear, uh, these may be mundane, but they are incredibly important doctrinally. See the lights coming up, just so you know. So um, here in a moment, I'm gonna give you two choices, and as I give you these choices, I want you to choose which one you think is greater, okay? Now, Nine o'clock, just to be clear, you were supposed to stand up, and nine o'clock was like, eh. So you have to stand up, your vote doesn't count, okay? If you think one is greater than the other, you'll stand up. If you think the other one is greater, and the light's gone, you will then sit down, okay? So here's your first choices, okay? Which one do you think is greater, either cake or pie? So on the screen, you'll see, if you think it's cake, stand up. If you think it's pie, sit down. All right, if you're standing, look around you. These are the weirdos right here, in case you were wondering. All right, good, have a seat. Right, how about this one? Next one, um, the movie or the book, okay? The movie, stand up, the book, sit down. Really? Some of y'all never even read a book before. You're just like, it sounds really smart to say the book, so I'm gonna stay seated. All right, sit down. How about this one? Drive in a car or fly in a plane? Drive in a car, stand up, fly in a plane, sit down which is greater. Ooh, like 50-50, okay, good, sit down. This is an important one, okay. Dogs or cats, so everybody stand up, it's dogs. Everybody just stand up, everybody. <laughs> Look at that cat, people, take that. Gee, I'm gonna get emails this week. You hurt my feelings. All right, sit down. All right, cook in or take out. Cook in, stand up, take out, sit down. It's based on budget, right? If we can, we're going out. Okay, last one. Now, this one, I just want to preface, is the most important choice of all of them that I've given you. Okay, this, this is the question. Which one is greater? A world without pizza or a world without tacos? Nobody moves. I don't know. Really? N neither one. And neither one, you lay on the ground. If you want to keep both of them, you just lay on. I'm just kidding. All right, have a seat. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. Very well done. Yeah. Here's what I've found to be true in my life. Our lives are largely made up 
of the things that we choose to express as preferences. Here's the things that I think are greater. Here's the things that I choose to be more important. It dictates the things that we eat, the places that we travel. Everything else is determined by what we deem to be greater. What's kind of weird is when you look in the Bible, you would think you would see this debate kind of show up, just like we did right here, about who is greater, Jesus or someone else or something else. But the biblical writers, there's no discussion. From beginning to end, there's no debate. Jesus is greater. And so in the Old Testament, you have everything that leads up to Jesus pointing to him, and then everything after Jesus is in light of Jesus. And so the question is really settled within the scriptures, Jesus is greater. And so the first week of our sermon series, we looked at how Jesus is, is the greater man. Where Adam was in the world, he failed to, failed to be obedient to God, but Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And though Adam brought sin and death into the world, Jesus brought life into the world through his faithfulness. Adam was meant to be a template for human flourishing and how to live, but instead it ended up being Jesus who showed us the best way to live. Where Adam failed, Jesus was successful. He's the greater man. And last week, if you were in here, you were blessed by a great message from Pastor Chad. Now, I did watch Emma's last week in the other room, and it was great. So you gotta go back and watch that one from last week. Last week, we looked at the story of Noah, a story we oftentimes don't go to, but in the story of Noah, we see Jesus as a greater rescue. Where Noah built this ark, it was a limited salvation, but through Jesus, it's salvation and grace for all. It's available to anyone. God's judgment was poured out on the earth through a flood, but through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, he took on the implications of sin on himself. Jesus is greater. He's a greater man. He's a greater rescue. And today, I wanna show you how he is a greater sacrifice. You see, the problem of sin that's introduced in the scriptures in chapter three uh, is at that point in time really only allocated to Adam and Eve. But what we see very quickly within three chapters, by the time we get to chapter six, is this sin and evil has gone pandemic all over the world and it's affected everyone to the point where God brings this flood as judgment. Now after chapter six, by chapter 12, we go from this big macro view of the world and sin to now all of a sudden this micro view, we, we zoom into a single family. And in particular, a singular man whose name is Abram. Now you may know him better as Abraham, as his name changes later on, but at this point in time, he's Abram. But Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. So Abraham and his family were living in a place called Ur. Everyone say Ur. It's a place, wow, that was guttural, yeah. It's a place you wanna be from, you know? So they're from Ur in a place called Canaan, and this is where they live. And the Bible says this is where God speaks to Abraham. And according to the scriptural evidence, it seems it's been a long time since God has spoken to his people. And so he introduces himself to Abraham once again, and here's how he does it. He brings him a message. It seems that God is always interested in initiating connection, initiating relationship. And aren't you glad that even in our life, God initiates relationship, he initiates connection, and he does so with Abraham as well, because he is interested in healing the hearts of not just Abraham and his family, but the hearts of all people who've been affected by sin and broken by what took place in Genesis 3. I'm so glad God does not sit back and just watch us, but he's involved. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse one through three, here's what the Bible says as God brings this message uh, to Abraham. It says, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So we're introduced to this new covenant in Genesis chapter 12. We talked about the last covenant last week, which is the Noahic covenant. Now this uh, covenant is known as the Abrahamic covenant. You know why? One was for Noah, this one's with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant that God gives to Abraham is an invitation. It's an invitation to leave something, and it's an invitation then to follow him. God tells Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. To be clear, this is not just about a location change. What God is inviting him into is a complete change of lifestyle. In particular, the primary change would have been about the kinds of gods that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have worshiped. You see, in Abraham's country of origin, his people, his father's household, they would have worshiped two different Canaanite deities. One's name was Baal, the god Baal, and the other one was the goddess named Asherah. The Canaanite worship that took place around Baal and Asherah was really focused on two things, fertility and harvest. And so what would take place in Canaan is they would sacrifice to appease Baal, to appease Asherah, to make them happy so that they might receive the children that they want or the harvest that they long for. They had to keep the gods happy by the blood of sheep and bulls. And sometimes we even have historical evidence that in crisis, they would sacrifice their firstborn children to these gods. This is what was happening in Canaan when God comes and speaks to Abraham. He says, leave your father's household the people, the country. These gods were represented by idols fashioned by stone and wood. There was a lot of fear and anxiety around trying to control these Canaanite gods and goddesses in order to receive the kind of life that you really wanted. It was very superstitious. You know, like when I was a kid in elementary school, maybe y'all did this too, you had this saying and it went like this, don't step on a crack or what? It'll break your mother's back. Scientific evidence has found out, indeed, if you step on a crack, it does not break your mother's back. But when I was in elementary school, I would be on the recess playground just like trying to dodge every crack I possibly could because I didn't want to impose that kind of pain upon my mother. And so that was for later on. And so I would try to avoid all these things. And it was superstitious. And to be honest, it was exhausting to play kickball and everything else while avoiding all the cracks. This is what was going on in Canaan. They had to keep the gods happy. Baal, Asherah, if we want children, if we want to harvest, then superstitiously we've got to sacrifice and give to them whatever they long for, whether it's bulls or goats or perhaps our firstborn, to make sure that we appease them. In Genesis 12, God wants something different for Abraham. And not just for Abraham, God wants something different for the whole world. And so God's invitation in chapter 12 to leave was accompanied by a promise. God said, leave your household, your country, your father's household, come and follow me. And there's a new covenant that's born. And in this covenant, it's a covenant of blessing. Abraham's little family would become a great nation, God promises. His name would be great. The blessings that God would pour out upon him would touch the entire world and make all that was wrong make it right once again. But to fully realize, Abraham would have to step out of his comfort zone and trust God. Do you notice in chapter three, when God says, come and follow me, he says, go to the place that I will what? Show you. What God is inviting Abraham into is a journey, not a destination. Be easier if it was, wouldn't it? 
Like when God called me to follow him, it would have been way easier if he was like, come follow me to this place. So I knew when I got there, like I knew when I arrived. That's not what God calls us into. He calls us into a journey away from some things and towards something even greater. So Abraham, leave your father's household. Now there's this sacred ancient Hebrew text known as the book of Jasher. In the book of Jasher, there's this story that was written historically about Abraham and his father. It's a bit of a legend, but it goes like this. That Abraham went to his father's room full of all the idols made of stone and wood. And Abraham came in with a hatchet. And he took the hatchet and he beat all the idols to pieces, just smithereens flying everywhere. And eventually he gets all of them destroyed except for one. And he takes the hatchet and he puts it into that one idol's hands. And because of all the commotion, his father comes running to the room and looks inside and sees all the destroyed idols and says, what has happened in here? To which Abraham responds, I think it's quite obvious. And his father says, it's impossible. I've made all of these idols with my own hands. I've fashioned them out of wood and stone. They don't have the power to do this. To which Abraham looks at his father and he says to him, then why do you worship them? Then why do you worship them? Think for just a moment all of the idols that we hold within our lives. All the things that we've convinced ourselves, if we can appease the gods, make them happy by, by staying true to all these kinds of things, whatever it might be, popularity, status, meaning, value, all these kinds of things, to which Abraham would say the same thing to us. Why do you worship these things? They hold no power. So God says, come and follow me. Give up your father's household, your country, your people. I will show you that I am trustworthy. I will show you that I am trustworthy. While everyone else was concerned with controlling the gods, God says, come and I will show you that I'm the one who's in control. Sometimes we have to leave our father's household to discover a God who's worth worshiping. A God who has this kind of power to change our lives. I mean, really practically, some of y'all, this could be like the end of the message right here, so pay attention. Sometimes we have to leave the old places, the old habits, Sometimes we've got to leave the old ways of living to experience the blessings that God has for us. But far too many of us, we're content to stay and keep trying to work it out on our own to make sure everything will turn out the way that we want it to. And here's the problem. We can't control that. Now, to Abraham's credit, at this point in time, all he knows is Asherah. All he knows is Baal. When God comes and speaks to him, he says, go from this place and come and follow me. And, God, and Abraham learns something new when the Bible says this, he went as the Lord told him. So out of this place, Abraham trusts God. His wife, Sarah, goes with him. They begin a journey in obedience and faith. At the core of faith, I believe, is this, letting go of control. Like, if you wanna be a true faithful people, the reason it's so difficult is because we have to let go of some things. We've gotta let go of control. Now to fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that was given to him, there has to become a great nation. And if you're gonna have a great nation, you gotta start with something. What is that? Children. Good, children. If you don't have children, you don't have a nation. And the problem is, Abraham and Sarah were not exactly youngins, okay? They were a bit more seasoned at this point in time. So God promises them this great nation. And the problem is Sarah is barren. She's unable to have children. So here's what they do. Rather than trust God in this journey, they decide to take matters into their own hands. So Sarah comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sleep with my servant, Hagar. She'll give you a child. We'll fulfill the promise on our own. 
We're impatient. We don't want to wait. And so they do. And Hagar has a son named Ishmael. And to make things even worse, Abraham takes Hagar and Ishmael and sends them out and away in shame. It's a very shameful part of the story. And so within a few chapters, Abraham goes from being the picture of faith as he follows God wherever he's gonna show him to go to becoming the picture of failure because he again tries to control things rather than trusting in God's promises. Now before too many of us try to chastise Abraham for his unfaithfulness and chastise him for his disobedience, if we're real honest and we look in the mirror, we do this all of the time. There are times we're really trusting God, he's in control, we're gonna follow him, and there's other times where we look for anything that we can hold on to, to try to control our lives and make it what we want it to be. We fight for our preferred future rather than uh, trusting in the guidance and the leadership and the authority of God for our lives. It takes faith to trust God to find our value and worth, but it's way easier to try to find it in social status, try to find it in popularity. It takes faith to trust God to provide for your wants and your needs, but it's much easier to trust in a bank account or a 401k. It takes faith to trust that God will provide companionship or a love relationship, but it's much easier to settle for unhealthy connections rather than trusting for God to provide. You see, living a life of faith at its core is about giving up the urge to regulate and govern and control our lives. Eventually, however, God comes through with his promise. Sarah becomes pregnant at the ripe old age of 90. Any ladies in the room wanna give this one a shot? 90 years old, she becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son, and his, his name is Isaac. And for the first time, we see God bring this blessing into their life that from chapter 12 had been promised to them. Abraham has a son. Can you imagine how Abraham must have felt when this son is born into the world? The fulfillment of God's promises, this miraculous birth of this little boy However, then, 10 chapters after God spoke to Abraham the first time, he speaks to him again in chapter 22. Isaac has been born. Here's what Genesis 22, 1 through 3 says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. When they had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him to go. So you have this son Isaac. It's the one you've been waiting for. It was the promise that was given to you. He's finally born. In Genesis chapter 22, it says God tests Abraham. In chapter 22, there is a test and there is a tease. A test and a tease. The first one's the test. God addresses Abraham to test him. Now, it's the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is nasah. Everyone say nasah. This means to test or to prove. And so God is testing Abraham. And my question is, why is he testing Abraham? What is he trying to prove exactly? What is he trying to do here? I think what God is trying to do is see if Abraham has learned from his failures of the past 10 verses. Has Abraham learned that God will actually lead him, that God will actually provide for him, that God will actually come through? Will Abraham listen? Will Abraham respond? Will he learn from the lessons that God has given him? I know this kind of test because I'm married 
and my wife occasionally gives me a list to go to the grocery store uh, to find a list of things. Doesn't happen often for kind of probably obvious reasons, but sometimes she gives me a list and then I'll go to the grocery store. And there's one thing that's always on that list that is very important. And simply on the list, it'll say paper towels. But I can tell you, it doesn't mean just paper towels. Because I am not able to just go into the grocery store and pick the cheapest paper towel I can find or the one that's closest to the door or the one that's aesthetically pleasing. What my wife means is get bounty paper towels. Bounty or bust. If you come back with something different, you're getting back in the car and you're going back to the grocery store to exchange it for the correct paper towel. You know how I know this? I've failed over and over and over and over again. Trying to save a buck. So I know this test because I know I've learned from the mistakes I've made in the past so that when I go, all my wife has to say is, get paper towels. I'm like, I know exactly what that means. This is a test. My wife's not trying to test me so that I would fail. She's testing me so I would what? Succeed. (laughs) What God is doing here with Abraham is not trying to cause Abraham to fail. God is looking for Abraham to succeed. Abraham, have you learned from the mistakes that have been made in the past? Your impatience, your desire to fulfill the promises that I've given to you on your own. Have you learned? God tests Abraham by telling him to take his son, his only son, and sacrifice him on a mountain called Moriah. It's a tough test. Abraham's waited nearly 100 years for this child. He was the fulfillment to promises given all the way back in chapter 12. He is the result of countless dreams and prayers. He is the product of miraculous birth. How could God ask him to sacrifice his son on the altar like this? But notice in verse three, Abraham doesn't skip a beat. God says, go sacrifice your son. Abraham's like, no problem, let's do it. And so without a second thought, Abraham doesn't hesitate. He gets his donkey and his servants and the wood for the sacrifice and his son, and off he goes to the place that God will show him. I think there are two things happening here that are very important and probably simultaneously. First is this. You have to take into account Abraham's background, the content and the culture from which he's come from. He's from Ur, the land of Canaan, where the gods there are the gods of Baal and Asherah. He's still learning about Yahweh. He knows those gods. That's the gods of his father and his country and his people. And so when this God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac, Abraham must have said, okay, that's what you do. If you wanna keep the gods happy, if you wanna make sure you have control and life turns out how you want it to, of course you sacrifice your firstborn. I've seen it happen my entire life. And so when God says go, Abraham says no problem, I'll follow the instructions and in confidence he follows God. Now, the second thing that's probably going on here is Abraham may have learned his lesson that when God tells you to do something, you trust him. You trust that he knows what he's doing, and you trust that he can do anything. We're given a little bit of a glimpse about this in in Hebrews in the New Testament, as the author writes in retrospect, looking back to what's happening there with Isaac. Here's what the author says in Hebrews 11. He says, Abraham knew God could raise Isaac from the dead. So according to the New Testament writers, the reason Abraham does this, he knows, even if this goes bad, God can do anything, and he could raise Isaac from the dead. Either way, 
Abraham is walking a very familiar path to many of us when we sense that God is inviting us to sacrifice something that is so important to us in obedience. When God asks us to give up something that potentially has become an idol in our hearts, something that we've grown to love more than we love God. So what kinds of things get in the way? When God tells us to follow him, maybe it's things like our career. God's like, I want you to change that. I want you to give that up. And we're like, no way, I've worked hard for this. It's been years and years and years. I've gotten to this place by hard work. I can't give it up. What about an addiction? You gotta give this up if you wanna go to the place I'm gonna lead you to. We're like, I can't do it. It's been happening for so long. It's been, I'm so invested here. It's the thing that keeps me going. I can't give that up. Maybe it's alcohol, some kind of substance. It's been a part of my life for so long. I can't give it up. Yet all along, we're missing the fact that if we're willing to give this thing, then God will lead us to the place that he wants to go. Are we willing to give those things up? Maybe it's, it's something not even bad. Maybe God's saying, would you give up your comfort to follow me? Would you give up your time? Would you give up your money, your resources? Would you lay these things down? I mean, could you do it? If God said, this has to go in order for me to lead you to the next place that I want you to go to. It reminds me of this story in the New Testament about this man called the rich young ruler. In the story in the New Testament, this rich young ruler comes and has a conversation with Jesus, and he says to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get the fullness of life that I know is available to me? And here's what Jesus says. I want you to take all your stuff, all your possessions. I want you to sell it, and I want you to give it to the poor. And the Bible says that the young man hears what Jesus says, and he can't do it. The Bible says he turns and he goes away sad. Here's the most fascinating thing about that story. Jesus doesn't chase after him. Jesus isn't like, you know what, never mind, okay, just half of it. If you just get half of it away, that's all, that's all you need to do, then you can come follow me. No, Jesus says, this thing, and just to be clear, God isn't asking that from any of us, necessarily. What he's, what he's pointing out is the thing that that man loved so much that he couldn't sacrifice it to follow God. It could be anything for us. What is it that we hold on to? We'll be willing to sacrifice it and lay it down. Because God is calling us not to a destination, he's calling us to a journey. Will you follow me? Will you trust me that I'll provide? Will you walk with me? So first, there's a test in the scripture, in Genesis 22, will you sacrifice your son? God wants to prove both Abraham's faith and his own faithfulness. God wants Abraham to see that he has faith to follow God, and he also wants Abraham to see that he is indeed faithful. Abraham, have you learned from Ishmael and Hagar the mistake that was made there? Did you learn from the birth of your own son Isaac that God can be trusted? Does Abraham have the kind of faith for his family to be made a great nation? Does he have the kind of faith for him to be a blessing to the whole world? God is also proving to Abraham that he can be trusted even when things seem uncertain, and we don't know what the next step is. My wife, when she and I were first married, uh, she was a broadcast journalism major at USC. And so her, her kind of like trajectory and path originally was to be an anchor on the news. And then she was like, yeah, get up that early? Maybe I'm not gonna do that. So she decided I'm gonna do something different. And she was like, I don't wanna tell the news story. It's so depressing, like I wanna tell a different story. And so she graduated and wasn't really sure what was next, but she landed this job with this wedding company editing wedding videos, and she loved it. Like she loved every minute of it. So she'd go to work and it was really great money and she would come home excited about this thing she did today and how beautiful this thing was and everything about the job was perfect and she was so excited that it had been provided for her. Now as she was doing this, eventually she began to realize that what she was doing was 
editing with copyrighted music. And so it really began to bother her. She's like, listen, I don't know that I can continue to do this because I, I know this is like illegal and I, I feel really convicted about it. So she came and talked to me. She's like, I don't, I don't think I can do this job. I think I need to give this job up. And as the godly and pastoral husband that I am, I said, you're crazy. <laughs> no, you don't. It's fine, okay, like, you won't get arrested. If you do, I'll get you out of jail. It's not a big deal. Like, this is a, this is a great job. Like, it's, it's, you love it. it. It brings you life. And she's like, I know, but I, I just don't know that I can do it anymore. I think I need to give this thing up. I'm like, just give it a little bit of time, you know, and then we'll see what happens. So she did. She kept working. And eventually she was invited to lead a high school girls group in a Bible study on the book of James. And so she said she would. And so she was studying for her Bible study. And in James chapter 2, verse 10, she read this verse. And it says this, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And she was like, oh no. So she came and spoke to me again. She's like, Trevor, I can't do it. I have to quit this job. I'm like, why? She's like, James too. I was like, don't listen to James. I'm not just kidding. <laughs> She's like, I, I know I have to because, because if I know this is wrong and I continue to do it anyway, I'm guilty of breaking the whole thing. I, I've, got to, I've got to not do this. So she did. She quit the job. She gave the whole thing up. And I think that Jenna learned something that day. One, she learned something about herself that she possessed the kind of faith that would enable her to walk in obedience to God. That if she heard from him, she would do what he says. But also, I think Jenna found out about God's faithfulness. That if she were to follow him, he would lead her into places that otherwise might be missed. There were wonderful things that came from her making that change that we could never have seen. Again, it's a journey, it's not a destination. She had nothing to go to other than she knew she had to make a change. When I was a freshman in college, I was playing football at a small college up in Indiana. I was enjoying every minute of it. I was an hour and a half from home. I was an environmental bio major because I'm smart. And God called me to do something else, to move to South Carolina. I knew nobody here and start a whole new endeavor and career and to follow him. I'm so glad I did. There are people in this church who I know God has spoken to and, and has said, be generous with what God has given to you. And they have literally made an impact all around the world. I've seen it with my own two eyes from their generosity and their sacrifice. There are people in this church who I know have bravely walked away from addiction, have broken its back and broken its chains because they believe that God will lead them into better spaces and places if they trust him. I've seen it happen. And this is the lesson that Abraham is trying to be taught. It's like God is saying to him, listen, you can't control me. There's nothing that you could sacrifice or give up that would make me do the things that you want, but you can trust me. If you're willing to give it up, you can trust me. And Abraham passes the test. So he and Isaac, they start this lonely hike up the mountain together. So Genesis 22, verse six through 12, here's what the Bible says. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But there is, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on up together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on top. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached for his, with his hand and took a hold of the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. 
Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Everything's fine. <laughs> You've not withheld from me your son, your only son. So the story continues that Abraham and Isaac, I can't imagine how painful this experience must have been for Abraham. He puts the wood for the sacrifice on his son's shoulders. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice that he's about to lay on all the way up the hill, all the way up the mountain together. Now, if you notice within the passage, Isaac notices something. Dad, I see two things of the three that we need. I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, confidently perhaps, maybe even a tiny bit scared, God will provide. He'll provide the lamb for the sacrifice. So the father builds the altar of wood. He places his son bound hand and foot on top of the wood. He takes the knife to kill his son, but the angel interrupts. And Abraham learns something new about Yahweh that he's never known perhaps before. This is God's way of saying to Abraham, I am not a God of death. I am a God of life. I know you know the Baals and the Asherahs and the way to try to control them and keep them happy. You can't control me, but you can trust me. If I ask you to give something up and sacrifice something, you can trust that I'll provide for you. You can trust that I'm good. And so Isaac is spared. And what's happening here is gradually the Jewish people are learning throughout history in the Old Testament what this God is like. Just, this might be kind of a, a, a brain blower for you for a second, but the people in the Old Testament didn't know the stuff that we know. Does that make sense? They don't know the end of the story like we know the end of the story. So oftentimes we read these things in the Old Testament, we're like, get it together, people, Jesus, right? He's coming. But for them, they don't know that. And so they're learning something gradually about who God is and what he's like in relationship with one another. And Abraham learned something new. You can't control me, Abraham, but you can trust me. I would argue we learn more about God when life is a test than we, than we learn when life is the best. We learn more about God when life is a test than we do when life is the best. Here's what I mean. Ultimately, we grow through adversity, struggle, and pain. What Abraham experiences in Genesis 22 is only the tip of the iceberg of the Jewish people wrestling for hundreds of years to better relate and to understand God. And to be honest, I feel like the same is true for my own life and the many lives that I've walked alongside of here in this church. I have not discovered God's faithfulness when the cupboard is full, but when the cupboard is empty, amen? I have not felt the nearness of God. I've felt it more in loss than I have in fortune. I have seen him work more in pain than I have in pleasure. And Abraham's journey away from Ur has led him through uncertainty and through anguish into an intimacy with God that can only be found by him letting go of control rather than holding it tight. In these short verses, God teaches Abraham, I can't be controlled like the other gods that you know, but I can be trusted and that I am good. I oftentimes wonder how many times have I refused to place my faith in God and in doing so, I've missed a blessing that he's wanted for me. I don't know, God, I wanna hold on to this. I wanna keep this for myself. I'm not willing to sacrifice this or let this go. All the time, God's saying, I've got something better for you. If you just trust me on this journey, this isn't a destination. I can't tell you exactly where it's gonna be, but if you'll trust me, I promise that I'll take you there and I will take care of you along the way. Now, what happens in this story is as Isaac is spared, all of a sudden there's a shocking discovery made. 
In Genesis 22, verse 13 and 14, here's what it says. Abraham then looks up from the altar, and he sees there in a thicket a ram caught with his horns in all the briars and the thorns. He goes over and he takes the ram and he sacrifices as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. So Abraham called the place what? Say it with me. The Lord will provide. And to this day, the writer says, it is said, on the mountain, the Lord will provide. A sacrificial offering in the Old Testament context was about people being made right with God. It was a way of pleasing and appeasing the gods. But in this story, it's completely different. God makes a way for a sacrifice still, but it's actually a ram whose horns are caught in a thicket of thorns. That's where the sacrifice comes from. Rather than Isaac's life being taken up, the ram takes his place, and Abraham calls the mountain the place the Lord will provide. And he promises, on the mountain, the Lord will provide. I told you earlier that this chapter 22 is about a test. But chapter 22, Genesis, is also about a tease. One of my favorite things about really good movies is when they put teases in the movies, little pieces that you don't catch until you watch the movie back later on, like, oh my gosh, that's pointing to that and this to that, and Pixar are masters about this. I mean, some of the greatest Pixar movies have some of the greatest teases, Easter eggs within them, if you will, where you see them and you're like, oh, that makes sense now in light of this. So for instance, if you watch the movie Monsters, Inc., and I know y'all will go home and do this today, the little girl, Boo, at the very end, gives him a toy, and it's a clownfish that looks just like Nemo. And in the movie Finding Nemo, there's a little boy that you can see who's reading a comic book, and the comic book on the front says, The Incredibles. And in the, in the Incredibles movie, you see a scene where Mr. Incredible is fighting in Metroville, and there's a car that's parked there in the back of the scene that looks just like Doc Hudson from the movie Cars. In the movie The Good Dinosaur, which is a terribly sad movie, by the way, but in the movie Good Dinosaur, there's a scene underwater where you get a glimpse of this octopus, and it's the same octopus from Finding Dory. You have these things. These are not done by accident. They're done with a point. And the point is, it's pointing to something to come. It's a foreshadowing of something even better. If we look back through the story of Abraham's test, we can become keenly aware of the foreshadowing that God is giving to us of something greater. It's a foreshadowing, a revelation that God is giving to us that we might have a sense of what he's really up to in the world. I wanna share these with you. Isaac was Abraham's what? His only son. And Jesus is God's only son. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. And Jesus carried the wooden cross for the sacrifice. Isaac climbed the hill of Moriah all the way to the top, and Jesus climbed the hill of Golgotha where he would be crucified. Isaac's life was spared, but Jesus, he was slain. There was a ram that was provided in the Old Testament, but the lamb would be the one that's provided in the new. Isaac was saved from death, and Jesus was raised from death. See, the entire story of Genesis 22 is pointing to something greater that is yet to come. Had the readers known then what we know now, they would have said something like, man, don't tease us, get to Jesus. Like we know there's something else coming. We know there's something greater beyond just what's happening here within the story. Would you get there, please? And this morning we know this, Jesus is a greater sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, here's the way the writer says it to explain all that's going on here. He says, the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming. And the law means the sacrificial system, all of the ways that people had tried to connect and appease and make the gods happy. 
all the ways they tried to atone for their own sins and sacrifices. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, I can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly over and over, year after year, make perfect those who are drawing near in worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped giving these offerings? For the worshipers who would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins, but those sacrifices in the Old Testament are an annual reminder of their sins. And then it says this, verse four, it's the kicker. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, to which every bull and goat would have said, it would have been nice to know this earlier. The blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin. It was limited. So year after year, it had to be done again and again. Verse eight then says this, for he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, the sacrificial system, then he said, here I am. Jesus said, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first and then establishes the greater, the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We learn something here. Number one, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. And the sacrifice that would happen over and over, year after year, what Jesus does is he comes along and he does it once for all. It's taken care of. The New Testament says that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Now this is a really kind of a theological word, but what it means is you gotta go all the way back to the Old Testament to understand what it means to atone for something. Because the word atone that's used in the New Testament is going all the way back to the sacrificial system. The way this would work is the priests would take the bulls and the goats and sacrifice them. Inside of the Holy of Holies in the temple, there would be a box that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of that box was the Ten Commandments, the law of God. It was placed inside of that box and every time a sacrifice was made, each and every year they would come and they would take that blood and they would sprinkle it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid where the Ten Commandments laid. So that when God looked from above, down through the lid into the Ten Commandments, his law, the broken law that the people did not listen to, he didn't see the broken law anymore, but instead he saw what? The sacrifice. He saw the blood. So when Jesus comes and he climbs on top of Golgotha, when he carries that wood on his shoulders, he does so because he is the ultimate sacrifice. He's a greater sacrifice. Doesn't have to happen year after year after year, but it's something we can receive and it's done once for all, paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. And so this morning, I want to invite us to have a chance to respond to this. There's no sense in talking about all this if we don't have a chance to do something about it. And so this morning, I wanna invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. If you would take your hands just in fists, just put them out in front of you, hands up with your fists balled up. I'm afraid that for some of us in the room this morning, and oftentimes even myself, we live life with clenched fists, holding on to these things that God is inviting us to let go of. And we hold on to them for control, for the kind of life that we want, because maybe it's just something we've always done, or maybe it's a crutch for us. And God is saying, let these things go, and if you do, you will receive blessing. So this morning, I invite you in your heart and mind just to think about that thing that God's inviting you to let go of. 
And if you're willing, I would invite you just to take your hands and open up your fists and say to God, I'm willing to give this up. I will sacrifice this. I will give it to you. And the only way we can receive, we don't earn, we receive, is with open hands ready to take the blessing that God has for us. So with open hands, would you just say to God, I receive the blessing that you have for me today. I will trust you on the journey. I don't need a destination. I'll trust that you'll lead me and guide me. So Father, today we give you our lives. We trust you with our hearts. We believe that there was an obedient son who carried the rugged wood for a sacrifice on top of a lonely hill. And like a ram whose horns were caught in a thicket of thorns, Jesus, you would have the crown of thorns pressed upon your head. You would be pierced for our transgressions. Your life would not be spared, but it would be taken. And the blood that would flow from your hands and your feet would wash away our guilty stains. Jesus, you are indeed the greater sacrifice. And we thank you today. So Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Would you change our lives as we begin to trust you with our whole hearts? It's in your name that we pray and everyone together said, amen.